Thank you for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. It's our prayer that this message will be both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith. If you missed this week, we hope you'll join us next Sunday at 9 a.m. for Sunday school or 10 a.m. for worship. Now, here's this week's message. So, a couple of years ago, we signed my oldest son, Troy, up for Little League uh, Baseball. We didn't think much about it. It just seemed like the natural progression from T-ball to go into Little League. And we were living at this time in a small mountain town in Virginia, which sports were just what kids did and what kids had to do to survive. We didn't think much of it. And then Jessica got the email that there would be tryouts for Little League. Troy was six years old. And I thought he had to try out for a sport. And when I heard that, it brought back all those memories growing up. You see, I was a little bit vertically challenged. I was a little wider than most. And you see, sports weren't my calling. It brought back all those memories of being worrying and, and just worrying about being chosen to play. I remember playing those pickup games of basketball or kickball and always wondered, would I be picked? Would I be the last person on the team, the one nobody really wanted, but they forced to be on there? It brought back all those memories of the horrors of the teachers in class who said, and teachers, please don't ever do this. When you're sitting in class and teachers say, please pick your partner. Anybody else ever worry about that? Yeah, you don't hear anything else the teacher says. You sit there and worry, am I going to get stuck with the teacher? Am I going to be the kid that nobody else wants to be with? All of this was running through my mind when I found out my six-year-old had to try out for a sport. I mean, what if he doesn't get picked? I mean, why do six to eight-year-olds have to worry about a draft? I mean, he's too young to worry about that. I'm too young to worry about that. But then I remembered, my neighbor is gonna be a coach. And so I started thinking, how can I influence my neighbor to pick my son? And I had an ethical dilemma. Is this wrong to make side deals about kids' sports? And I said, no, it's not. It's what you do. So I started thinking, what can I do? I mean, even if he's terrible, how can I make sure he's on the team? And I remembered he loves food. So as soon as he would come home, I'd fire up the grill and be like, hey, you want to come over and have some food? And I'd start talking to him about it. I mean, is this wrong? I'm plotting and scheming for my six-year-old to play sports. You see, I'm trying to figure out as a parent, how can I prevent my child from being rejected, from feeling disappointed? But of course, right, without being too overprotective, I don't want to be that dad. Do you feel my dilemma? How is all of this going to work out? This could affect his entire life. Six-year-old, literally, everything is at stake here. But then I found out, well, everyone gets to play. All you have to do is sign up to be on a team. Talk about a relief. Now, you may laugh at my story, and you probably should, but let's be honest, none of us want to be rejected, do we? None of us want to feel worthless. None of us want to feel abandoned. None of us want to feel like we're not good enough. In fact, none of us want our kids to ever experience anything like that. 
And according to psychologists, that's a fear all of us share. Every human being shares the fear of being rejected by their peers or, being or we fear disapproval from others. All of us want people to generally like us. None of us want to be humiliated. None of us want to feel like people don't want to be around us. We are just social creatures. It's how God has designed us. All of us want to be chosen. All of us want to be on the team. You see, the idea of not being chosen is extremely emotional, especially when you bring in, perhaps maybe not you, but me, you bring in my abandonment issues and not being good enough issues. I mean, this idea of not being good enough, not chosen, can be a really big deal. And so when we hear this idea that God chooses us or this idea that God elects us, Oh, well, it can get extremely emotional very fast. And it's rightly so. I mean, the doctrine of election, which is what we're going to talk about today, the doctrine of election is the most controversial thing that has to do with our faith, mainly because people are venomous about it. People are pretty mean about the whole to topic. Many struggled. We think, well, how can a loving God choose some and not choose others? Most people are just confused. We don't really understand it, and we've heard about it, maybe kind of, sort of, but we really don't get what it's about. But if we would just let the Scriptures, in fact, if we would just let the Apostle Paul tell us about it, we'd realize that this doctrine, this idea of being chosen, this idea of election, is a beautiful thing if we embrace it. To be quite frank, we just have to stop asking silly questions. Scholar New New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says this. He says, many of the questions we ask God can't be answered directly. Not because God doesn't know the answers, but because our questions don't make sense. They just don't make sense. You see, we can get so caught up rationalizing this idea of uh, election and being chosen. We can draw everything out to their logical conclusion. We can bring in our post-enlightenment, our scientific mentality, where everything has to be neat and tied up in a bow, and we can just draw all this out to say, we got it. Or we can just let Paul, we can let the scriptures speak for themselves and teach us what this doctrine really means. And that's what I want to do with you this morning. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, we started this study last week. This is the second week. We're going to walk through the book of Ephesians. Don't worry, we only got about five words in last week, okay? You haven't missed too much. But this is the second week. And while you're turning to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, if you don't have your Bible, it'll be back here on the screen uh, so you can follow along. But this section we're going to look at is really Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through verse 14. And now listen to this. In my version, in the New, in, in New International Version, it's broken up into two paragraphs and eight sentences. However, in the original language, verses 3 through 14, is one sentence. It's 202 words. My point to all of that is take that English teachers who think run-on sentences are wrong. God has inspired them in his holy word. Just throwing that out there. No one actually ever lets me get by with him, though. All right, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 through 2. It says, Paul, that's where we started last week, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
stop there. This is an introduction to the letter just like you and I would write today. Notice it identifies the writer, Paul, and the recipients. Notice that the Paul says the recipients, the people who are to receive this letter are the saints, or as the New International Version says it, to God's holy people. Please notice this is plural. And here's what I want you and I to see this morning. I'm just going to tell you up front. Ephesians 1 does not focus on an individual. It doesn't focus on you and me. There is one individual this section focuses on, and that person is Jesus Christ. And then it talks about all of those in Christ, plural, all of us, the church, and what we've received because of him. It's easy to read the scriptures and read it personally. I encourage it. But we can never forget that this was a letter written to an audience. This is a group of people. So to state it very plainly, this entire section has nothing to do with the election of individuals for salvation. It's focused on those who are in Christ, the plurality, because as I'll show you in a second, there's only one elect one. And to give you a heads up, his name is Jesus. You see this common phrase that Paul repeats over and over in this section, it's going to be underlined every time so you can see how prominent it is. It's this idea of being in Christ. In fact, in the original language, it's used 11 times in one sentence, in Christ. It's the faithful in him or in Christ, and it's common to the the writings of Paul. The phrase is complex, but the idea that it carries It's this idea of in Christ, he's speaking to believers, those who are in him, those who know Jesus, because it's through faith we're united to him. You see, the idea is this. Christ has identified with us through his incarnation. He came to be one of us, to walk among us. He became man, but we identify with Christ through our faith. And so the big idea we're going to see that Paul's listing out is if we identify with Christ, it means what is true of Jesus is now true of us. What is true of Jesus, because he is the one and we are in him, what is true of Jesus then becomes true of us as believers because we were in him. So what we are about to read is all because of Jesus Christ. Paul is explaining our, our, our new identity, our new you, because of Christ. So the introduction's over. He says, Paul, an apostle, to the faithful, to the saints, to God's holy people, those in Christ. What's the first thing he tells you to do because of that? He says this, well, praise. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing, where and how? In Christ. So Paul first calls the church, calls you and I to praise God. Some of your translations may say blessed because there's a play on word here. It reads, blessed is God who blesses us with spiritual blessings. In other words, Paul is calling all of us to worship and praise God. God for what he has done in Christ. I cannot state that more plainly. This entire section is really a doxology. It's a call to praise him because of what he's done. 
You see, it starts off saying, praise be to God, praise God. And then at the end of this sentence, remember, 202 words, at the end of the sentence in verse 14, he ends with, for the praise of his glory. See, we can get so distracted trying to understand the nuances and details of the middle section, but it's a call to praise and it ends with praise. It's calling us to praise God. You see, this isn't a textbook, it's a doxology again. For instance, this is one of my theology textbooks, okay? Single-spaced, no pictures, though I wish it had more pictures. Almost everything that Paul talks about in this topic is mentioned in this book. Hold, let me say that again. They needed this book to explain the 11 topics that he talks about in this one section. I'm not exaggerating. They're all talked, I mean, it's, it takes this much to expound on how deep this first section really is. But it's a call for you and I to praise God. He says, listen, he says, praise God for our spiritual blessings. And then he starts sprinkling through what these spiritual blessings are. He says, well, praise God because of election, for predestination, for redemption, for forgiveness, for the revelation of the mystery, because of grace, God's will, and God's plan. He says, if nothing else, you can get caught up and just praise God, even if you don't understand it all. None of us do. He says, you should just get caught up in praise because what God has done in Christ. So praise God. Listen, if you woke up this morning and things aren't going okay, if the marriage isn't going okay, if your finances aren't going okay, if your roof's leaking, if your AC's not working, if you just woke up and things don't seem like they're going good, do you know you can still praise God? You can still praise him for all of those things in Christ. You can just reflect on what he's done for you in Christ, and that should cause you to just praise him. You see, Paul gets caught up in that. He starts off by saying, praise God, and then he just starts adding, because of this, because of this, because of this, because of this. Praise God. If I could sing for you, I would break out in song right now. But for your benefit and mine, I will not do that to you. But let's go on to the next part, verse 4. I want you to see this real quick. Election has to do with purpose and responsibility. This week's going to be a little bit different. I'm going to tell you the big idea before you read. We read these sections. Election has to do with purpose and responsibility. Here we go. He says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. So there's that word, elect, or that he chose us. He chose us for a purpose, to be holy and blameless. Now what we have to understand is Paul is Jewish, which means we're, this is just screaming out the Old Testament here, here. Paul is echoing the story that the Jewish people would have constantly told them, that they were his people. They were his representatives on this earth. The idea of election comes from the fact that God chose this nation to be his people representing him and that covenant he made with them. Remember, God made a covenant with Abraham, 
And God told him through, the, through Abraham there would be a nation. This nation would bless the entire world. That's this idea of election. These people chosen would represent him. You see, in the Old Testament, election didn't have anything to do with personal salvation. It had everything to do with carrying out the purposes God had planned for them. Because God chose people to represent him on this earth. Remember, they were to be the light into the world. They were to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Not because they, not because they chose God, but because God chose them to do something. And I can't emphasize that enough. Election always, always includes responsibility. Election speaks to the responsibility that you and I have because of Christ. That God chose people to do something. Going back to our illustration of the day for sports. It's the exact same thing as being chosen for a team. Can you imagine being a captain of a sports team and picking someone to be on your team? And can you imagine if all they did was talk about how they were chosen, but they never actually played? If during the game they're like, look, I've been picked. Yeah, but are you going to play the position? No, but I've been picked. Yeah, it's speaking to the fact that you're on the team, that you have something to do. You have a responsibility. You see, election means that God has chosen in real time and real history to intervene and to pick people, to use people for him. That's an astonishing claim that God himself, the almighty God, would choose to have a relationship with humans. But that's what the statement is, that God has done something. God is using people. And anybody can be a part of it if you are in Christ. I'll show you that in a minute. You sign up to be a part of this team by believing in Christ. You see, a lot of times when we talk about election, we want to talk about us as individuals and us being picked. But Paul is teaching that God has chosen to use people, those in Christ, for his purpose. The claim is that God is moving in you and I can be a part of it. Because we are elected by the Father in Christ, that's the next thing we're going to see, in Christ and through Christ. We are elected by the Father in Christ and through Christ. It says, for he chose us in him, we just read this, in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. You see, the Father elects us, you and I, in Christ and through Christ. Christ is the elect one. Christ is the predestined one. Christ is the one from eternity past that was chosen to redeem the world. Christ is the only one who's been around before the world. It was Christ who was chosen to carry out this great plan of salvation. God always had a plan. We see it at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. We see this idea of the seed that would come. God has always had a plan, and that plan was Jesus Christ. You see, Klein Snodgrass says this. He says, individuals are not elected and then put in Christ. They are in Christ and therefore elect. You see, Christ is the chosen one. He is the one who has come to redeem the world. 
and the ones who experience this idea of election of being chosen is when we are in him. You see, Israel was giving a task to complete, but it was Christ who completed the task. Christ did what we could never do. Christ did what they could never do. Christ is the fulfillment of Israel. And through a relationship with Jesus Christ, now you become elect because what's true of him is now true of you. God chooses to use people through Jesus Christ because it's Jesus who redeems us and makes us holy. You see, there's redemption through the Son and only through the Son. And when we get the weight of this, we realize why we elevate Jesus so high. Verse 7, it says, In him, not apart from him, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached the fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Do you notice how much he's talking about Jesus? Right, it's all about Jesus. The language of redemption through blood is Paul retelling the Exodus story about how they were redeemed to be God's chosen people because of the Passover. But now we are redeemed by the blood of our Lord and Savior. Paul is giving us salvation history here, that Christ is the preexistent one, the one chosen to redeem people, the one that the Exodus story pointed to. It is Christ who is that. And now we have a new story to cling to. You see, the Israelites used to tell the story of how they were God's chosen people, redeemed. God, people brought out of slavery. You and I now have a new story to tell. Paul is saying that we have a story to say that God has chosen to reach down into the world and use people. And we can look back at the cross to remember what that cost him. That there's a new us. We're a new person. We've been born again because of Jesus Christ. When Paul says we've been adopted and we've been loved and that God has redeemed us, he's saying that you and I, we have value. Through Jesus, we have a new story to tell. You see, society tells us, he t tells you and I that we are important if we look good, if we drive the nicest car, if we wear the nicest clothes, if we have that education or we have that title, or maybe we're good if our kids act appropriately. Paul says that's not the right story. In Christ, you have value. In Christ, you are a child of God. All we have to do is look towards Christ, look at what he has done, and realize that we are now a part of the family of God, that he wants a relationship with us. And it's through Christ and in Christ because he is the mediator. Not you or I, he is. You see, when we talk about election, we don't talk about us, we talk about Christ. He is the special one. He is the chosen one. He needs to be exalted far above you and I. He is the one that we worship and praise. And because of him and what he's done, what is true of him is now true of us, and we've been redeemed and forgiven because of what he has done. You see, the story we tell of the cross reminds of whose we are. We are now God's because of Jesus Christ. See, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price, he tells us in a different letter. You've been bought. 
by Jesus Christ. Therefore, if you've been bought with a price, you have a responsibility to carry out because God has a plan. Look at this, verse 11. It says, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, may be for the praise of his glory. You see, in Christ, we were chosen and predestined according to the plan. Listen, the idea is that God had a plan to put everything right, to bring everything together. But the plan has always been in Christ. Meaning, if you were in Christ, you are now part of the plan, but the plan has always been Jesus. And then because of that, God had a plan to use the people in Christ, the church. God's always had a plan to use his church for his purpose You see, we don't believe in fatalism. Fatalism believes that all events are predetermined. We don't believe that. But we do believe that God had a plan, and that plan was Jesus. And then all those in Jesus become a part of that plan. You see, we believe that God is sovereign and knows all. But yet we can never forget that we have a choice, and we are held accountable for that choice. That is extremely clear in the Scriptures but we know that God's salvation plan reached from eternity past, that all those in Christ Jesus would have salvation. And we now share a part of his story because we are in him. Again, Christ is the chosen one, which means what's true about him then is true about us. You are part of this grand plan because of him. You see, we've been elected through faith. Look at verse 13. It says, And you were also included in Christ. Now stop. What do you mean? You were included in Christ, this idea of being part of him. He says, Now you. He's talking to a different group of people, but nevertheless, it's the same point. And you were also included in Christ. How are you included in Christ? Look at this. When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promise of of the Holy Spirit. You see, Paul says how you become in Christ, how you are a part of this idea of election and predestination and all of this other stuff that is true of Christ, is true of us. He says you are also included when you heard the message, when you believe. So how are you in Christ? How is all of that other stuff he said true about you? When you believe. You see, we are not elect outside of Christ. We are elect once we are in Christ. Basically, what's happening here for an illustration, it's going to break down, and I understand that, sorry, but it's the best I can do. It's the same thing with Troy playing baseball. I was so worried about him being chosen, about him being uh, picked. But all he had to do was what? Sign up. And once he signed up, he was now chosen to be a part of the team. It's interesting how we use these words, but all he had to do was actually sign up. You see, Paul is saying all of us can be elected in Christ when we sign up through faith. When we put our hope in Jesus Christ, we have now signed up and now we have been chosen. All you have to do is sign up for the team. Believe, put your faith in him. You see, all are welcome to know Christ. All are welcome to believe in him. And when we see the grand picture here, 
It will enable you and I to praise and glorify God. That yes, he has done all of that in Christ. And that you and I can take part. You see, all people can be a somebody in Christ Jesus. The problem is we want to be somebody without him. We want to be special by ourselves. We want to be special and chosen and we want to feel good. But we are a somebody only and through Jesus Christ. And when we believe, Paul says, we are marked and sealed with the Spirit. He says, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance and to the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. He started off with praise be to the Father. And now he ends this sentence with praise of his glory. The idea is that we should get caught up in all those big ideas and just try to picture and try to think through all that Christ has done for you and I. You see, in a nutshell, what Paul is saying is that the new you has been elected to worship. It's only in Christ and through Christ you have been chosen to worship and glorify God. Something's different now. It's not about you any longer. Now it's about him. You see, the new you isn't really about you. It's now about him. Because you are valuable. You are loved by the almighty God. You are forgiven through Christ. You weren't cheap. It cost him his life to purchase you. You are valuable and important to God. Stop trying to get your value from things that won't work. Stop trying to get it from your marriage or your job or your education or whatever it is. You are valuable because of what Jesus Christ has done. And though you are valuable and though you are important, that comes with a tremendous amount of responsibility. Just like for any team, the people who are the most valuable have the most responsibility. Again, the illustration breaks down, but you get the point. You are valuable, but that means you have a responsibility to play, a a part to play. Because you've been redeemed, you can now be used for the glory of God. You have a responsibility to invest in your relationship with God. You have a responsibility to glorify him in all that you do. You have a responsibility to show him in everything you do in this life because you are a representative of him. So we sing him praises and glorify him because of that. You see, the new you isn't about you. The new you is about him. You've been chosen to worship and glorify God. And embracing this, I'm almost done, embracing your calling embracing that God has chosen you in Christ, embracing the fact that you have a responsibility, that will lead you towards a vision of what God has in store for you. You see, as a pastor, I can't tell you how often I hear, somebody needs to do something about this. Do you know what my first reaction always is? Not somebody, but you. Well, they actually want me to do it is what that means. But I'm very comfortable and confident in what God has called me to do. But are you? You see, when you understand you're important, when you understand you have a responsibility, you can start thinking about what it is God needs you to do. Because you've been chosen by the Father to be a part of what he's doing in this world. You've been redeemed 
by the Son and empowered from His Spirit. You are now a part of His family. And so I say all of that to say, what has God been calling you to do for His glory? What is that thing you've been putting off? What is that thing you've been putting to the side? What is that thing that everything else has taken priority 